Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Jillian Melcher, a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. Today, I'm here with Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow here at IWF, and she's also the author of The New Trail of Tears, How Washington is Destroying American Indians. Naomi, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So you've written extensively about how the federal government has harmed Native Americans through overregulation, and you've also written a lot about some reforms that could vastly improve their lives. Um, Let's begin by talking a bit about the intense poverty and crime that Native Americans face today. Yeah, it's a pretty sad state of affairs. And, uh, you know, I warn people when I start talking about the statistics that they're just going to be shocked. Um, So uh, Native Americans are actually the poorest racial ethnic group uh, in the country, uh, the highest rates of poverty. Um, They also have the highest rates of gang violence, uh, higher than African Americans or Latinos. Um, They have the highest rates of uh, sexual abuse, for women and of child abuse for children. Um, And uh, they have some of the uh, lowest education rates in the country. Uh, The the high school graduation rates on some reservations is less than 50%. Um, There are a couple million uh, American Indians in the country and about one million live on reservations. And the statistics for those who live on reservations are much worse uh, than those who live uh, outside them in the rest of the country. And that is shocking stuff. So is this just a consequence of historic war, murder, forced assimilation, or is the federal government perpetuating injustices right now on Native Americans? So I guess, like, maybe more specifically, can you tell me a bit about the federal government's current policies toward Native Americans and and why they aren't working? Right. So I think a lot of people, when they think about Native Americans, think about whatever it is that they learned in school. And typically, a lot of that uh, education uh, ends around 150 years ago. So we think about Native Americans as people who were oppressed and people who were the victims of our policies, uh, you know, our, our, our westward expansion strategies uh, back then. Um, but in fact, uh, those policies, interestingly, have continued to today. So everybody knows or they think they know what a reservation is. A reservation uh, was a way that, uh, you know, the American government Put, uh, took, they, they took land away from American Indians and said, here, you go here instead, and uh, we'll pursue our, our westward expansion, and, and you stay in this little plot of land over here. Um, the reservation system, though, is uh, there's, there's more to it to understand than that. A reservation means that land is held in trust by the federal government. So American Indians can't own reservation land outright, uh, which means that they don't have any of the property rights that other Americans have. They cannot buy or sell their land among themselves. Um, They can't get a mortgage, for instance. You know, if you think about the American home as the American dream, um, American Indians can't get a mortgage because a bank could never foreclose on the property because it's owned by the federal government. Um, Similarly, about a quarter of small business owners in America use their home uh, as equity to either finance or start up small businesses, and American Indians don't have access to that capital either. So what you find on reservations is a, a deeply 
dysfunctional economy uh, to the extent that a, a private economy really exists at all. Um, this is what uh, the economist Hernando de Soto has called dead capital. You, you may have this land in some you know, principled way, but you don't actually have it because you can't actually do anything with it that might create more wealth. Wow. So those restrictions on native property rights sound like a big problem. And what reforms could fix them to create economic opportunity? Well, it's a very complicated question. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of scholars have looked at this and kind of thrown their hands up. Um, For the research that I did for the book, in addition to visiting a number of Native American communities uh, here in the U.S., I also visited some First Nations in Canada. They have a very similar system there. It's called the reserve system instead of the reservation system. Um, But uh, some tribal leaders up there had proposed some legislation called the First Nations Property Ownership Act. Uh, and it was working its way through Parliament uh, as I was doing my research. And what it would do is essentially give the underlying title of the land um, to the um, First Nations themselves. So a first uh, a reserve would essentially become much more like an actual city or a province. Um, the the land would still be part of that, uh, you know, part of that reserve. Um, but natives would actually hold the underlying title to it. They could buy uh, or sell it among themselves. They could sell it to other people if they wanted to. Um, And the nice part about this legislation, I think, is that the communities could actually decide whether they wanted to opt into it or not. So it wasn't forcing everyone to adopt a new system. You know, if if you believe that your community um, uh, should, should maintain this kind of communal property system um, and that the land should ultimately be held by the national government, um, you can continue with that. But many of the leaders I spoke with were really looking for more autonomy for their communities. They wanted, um, you know, their own uh, members to be able to engage in economic transactions without the oversight of bureaucrats in Washington. And you know, one of the things that I talk about in my book is really the amazing overreach of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. A lot of Indians like to refer to this, uh, the BIA, they say, stands for bossing Indians around. And there's a reason for that. There are um, 9,000 staff members at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is approximately one staff member for every 110 Indians living on a reservation. And they really interfere in the day-to-day economic lives of Indians in a way that's kind of shocking. So, for instance, uh, one story I heard from a man who lived uh, on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana. He was part Crow and part Northern Cheyenne, but he had had similar experiences with both. And he had owned, um, you know, a, a quote-unquote owned a small piece of land where he was grazing cattle, and he was trying to get some more land from his neighbor, just a few acres, and he offered his neighbor, you know, a small price for this land. Um, and he and his neighbor had agreed, and then a representative of the Bureau of Indian Affairs came in and said, no, you cannot conduct this transaction because we don't think that that's fair market value, the price that you've agreed on. So obviously, in the real world, fair market value is the value that people agree on. Uh, it's not some abstract concept. But if you're a bureaucrat in Washington, you know, you could just make up these numbers out of thin air and then try to impose them on a population thousands of miles away. And as you can see, it just it interferes, as I said, with their day-to-day lives. So in the last year, we've seen a lot of focus on Native Americans, a lot of media coverage, and that's specifically because of the Standing Rock scene and the controversy over the Dakota Access Pipeline. 
So I want to hear your take on that and, and if you think that energy development could actually be part of the solution for creating economic opportunity for impoverished tribal communities. Sure. So I think that there are several things to notice first about the Dakota Access Pipeline. First, just from the perspective of most Americans, I think it was very shocking to watch the news and just see how some of the Plains Indians, as they are called, are living. Just how shocking it is to find that in the middle of winter, there are actually people whose main residence is a tent um, or who are living in trailers, you know, overcrowded trailers where there's just a tarp protecting them from the elements. And so I think that you know, there's rightly a lot of sympathy that the American public felt when they saw how these people were living. And then the way that the issue had been presented as, you know, now not only have we done all of these horrible things to them in the past, but we're going to continue to, we're going to trample on their rights. Um, so the first thing that, that should be noted is that the the route for the Dakota Access Pipeline was specifically made so that it didn't cross the actual part of the reservation, part of the tribal territory. Um, and there's a reason for that, because no company actually wants to have to deal with a tribe. The the laws are so um, difficult, and the, there's, they're not transparent in any way. And so most businesses, and I've talked to a lot of business owners both before and after the book was published, who have said that to me that they don't want to deal with um, tribal leaders because they feel as if the regulations and the rules are always changing. And as you know, in a business, you know, what you're looking for um, is, is some kind of transparency and some kind of sense that, you know, you're going to get a fair deal out of this. So in other parts of the pipeline, you know, private owners of land were paid. You know, they said, well, we want to go through your land and the business and the, you know, property owners in um, the various states where the pipeline went would say, well, this is how much you need to pay me in order to go through my land. And uh, Energy Transfer Partners, which uh, was in charge of the pipeline, said, fine, here, here is your check, here is your money. Um, but for the Indian Territory, they were, like I said, specifically trying to avoid this land. So, you know, what happened, I think, and I spent a lot of time looking through the court documents um, as this sort of worked its, its way through uh, the system, uh, starting, you know, when the, when the, um, when the Dakota, uh, sorry, when the, when the Sioux were, when the Standing Rock Sioux started to object, um, was that what you had was a situation where the company and the Army Corps of Engineers were really, really, really trying very hard um, to consult with the tribe about lands that they felt um, were sacred, even if those lands were not part of the Standing Rock Territory. And you can see a point in the negotiations where suddenly, you know, it starts off with the tribe saying, look, be careful here, be careful here, and, you know, we're concerned about this particular path. And then suddenly the leader of the Standing Rock Sioux says, um, actually, we want you to go back to square one and, and redo the entire path of the pipeline because we don't feel that you're respecting Native rights enough. And at that point, the Army Corps of Engineers said, look, we don't even have um, jurisdiction here. A lot of these are private owners, and we cannot tell them um, where uh, a pipeline should or should not be put. And and so what you see here is is a complete breakdown. Um, and and the the what had, what had happened, I think, is that native leaders um, certainly saw themselves as having a kind of alliance um, with certain environmental activists, and they saw that they were getting more. Um, 
you know, pressure from public opinion and from this, you know, the sort of media that had descended on this area. And they were trying to push their luck. And Energy Transfer Partners was not going to redo years' worth of work and, you know, billions of dollars that had been spent in order to uh, to exceed to the demands of these natives. So, so what can we what can we say here? I think, you know, one thing that's true is that these Indian lands and many of the tribes in the United States want more economic development. They want to work with businesses um, both on their land and off in order to, you know, put their people in a better economic situation. And what the Standing Rocks too have done here is that they have made the landscape for business. Um, and what the Obama administration did as well is that they made the landscape for business even more muddy than it had been before. And I think many companies will be even more wary than they had been before about doing business uh, with tribal leaders. Or, or on tribal lands. Um, but I think there's great potential. There, it, it's so ironic uh, that we've gotten into this situation where we put American Indians on this land, these reservations, specifically because we thought it was useless. Americans 100 years ago looked for the least fertile pieces of land and said, here, you stay here. But it, now it has turned out that there are huge untapped reserves of coal and uranium and you know, areas that can be used for fracking under these uh, reservations. And unfortunately, um, now we have sort of turned around and said, oh, sure, you have all this wealth under your land, but now we're going to make it extremely difficult for you to actually use that wealth. Um, so we have once again, I think, put American Indians in a bind. And to looking, you know, looking toward reforms, I think one of the, the best things we can do at this point um, is trying to lift some of the regulations that we have put on reservations and trying to help them use those untapped reserves in order to bring greater wealth to their communities. Gotcha. So shifting gears a bit, um, one of the most shocking and tragic portions of your book addresses the epidemic of sexual assault on American Indian reservations. And I was interested to see you make the argument that because of political correctness, the federal government has failed Native children. Can you tell me a little bit more about this problem? Sure. I think that what we first need to look at, again, I, I mentioned the statistics, but they're, they're pretty shocking, the high rates of sexual abuse and child abuse that have gone on on some reservations. And again, this is not, you know, we're not talking about all American Indians here, but, um, but it is a problem that it's really hard to look at, but I, I think we have to stop ignoring. So um, one of the worst cases was the Spirit Lake Reservation. Um, and what you had there was a situation where um, there, there is some oversight that's supposed to be done by the federal government. Uh, and you had uh, a person who turned out to be a whistleblower who said, you know, um, there's just a shocking amount of abuse going on in this reservation. And I encourage people, you know, to look at the book. Um, it, it gets into some pretty disturbing details um, about, you know, how family dysfunction has led to one generation after another of, you know, uh, of, of parents abusing children, of siblings, you know, engaging in inappropriate conduct with each other. Um, and it's, it was really just from a personal perspective, really a hard chapter to write just because it was really, really even hard to just think about these things. Um, but I would say that 
what happened in at least two cases was you had people, one person who was demoted, and then when his case was publicized, um, you know, he was given his job back, but another person who was fired because he kept reporting on what was going on on these reservations. And it's, it's not surprising. Now, tribal leaders will tell you that to the extent that these problems are something they will acknowledge, um, it, it goes back to the system of boarding schools that the U.S. government uh, and some churches had established uh, in primarily in the um, in the 19th century, um, but also going into the 20th century, and that these boarding schools turned out to be hotbeds for sexual abuse. And when people graduated from them, um, you know, they were really supposed to be uh, places where forced assimilation took place in some cases. But when people graduated from them and went back to the reservations, um, they didn't know the appropriate way to behave. They were just permanently traumatized in various ways, and they brought that back to their communities with them. Um, you know, I think there is a lot of truth to that. Uh, I certainly think that there's plenty of record of abuse at these schools. Unfortunately, now this has been going on for multiple generations, and what you need um, is really a better approach to law enforcement and justice uh, that needs to be done. So, for instance, I spoke with three educators uh, on uh, different uh, in different Indian communities, and I said to them, the three of them, um, if you found out of a case of child abuse, who would you report it to? And one man said to me, oh, I'd report it to the tribal authorities. And one man said to me, I'd report it to the state officials. And one man said, I'd report it to federal officials. And just the, the sort of um, unclear jurisdictional issues there, I think, present a problem. But then when you get to cases where, you know, a, 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 something is actually brought to a court, um, you have situations where, um, members of the tribe are actually presiding over cases where their own family members are party to the case. So, you know, how can you adequately carry out justice um, under such a system? It's, it's very hard to see. Um, but I think that Americans and, you know, and the federal government in particular, but I think Americans in general are very reluctant to sort of cast blame and say, you know, look at what these people are doing in their own communities because, um, you know, we feel so much guilt and so much responsibility for the state that we're in, that they are in. But the fact of the matter is we, we have to stop being politically correct about this and say, look, there's a serious problem. However it came to be, something needs to be done because American Indians are American citizens and their children are deserving of the same protections as all American children are. Absolutely. Well, Naomi, um, it sounds like you've done a ton of really great reporting on this. I'd encourage people to check out your book. Thank you for talking about this important issue. Um, and I'd also encourage listeners out there to stop by our website, iwf.org, where you can catch up on Naomi Schaefer Riley's writings on this topic. Um, this has so been another fun. edition of, thank you. This has been another edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. And for those who listen, thank you for your time. You can find out more about this issue and many more at iwf.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.